Today's text will be found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I will, uh, <laughs> and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. When the things that we hold dear are threatened, uncertainty and fear can lead to a disposition of being troubled. Some of you might feel troubled today. Maybe not just today. In fact, the idea of your heart being troubled is something that often happens not for one day or two, but often for a season. It seems to be longer. It seems to be deeper. To have your heart be troubled is more than just a temporary worry and it's more than just a short-term fright. Some of you know that feeling. Maybe others of you don't know that feeling today, but you have known it. You have looked at your life and you've seen a season and you say, during that season, my heart was troubled. That's almost certainly the case for the disciples of Jesus. The disciples who had devoted themselves to him for three years of their lives. And now as they sat around the table with him in the final hours before his death, you can sense that their hearts are troubled. I mean, they have enjoyed his favor with them. They've wondered at his words and they were astounded by his miracles. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They've followed him. They followed his words. They followed his commands. They followed him physically from village to village and city to city. In short, Jesus asked these men to give up everything that they had to follow him. And they did it. And now he tells them, that he is going to leave them. 
and that where he's going that they can't come with. When everything that they thought they had in attaching themselves to him, everything that they thought that they had was about to change. And so you can imagine the resultant thoughts and emotions and confusion and uncertainty and fear that would come. It would be natural for them for their hearts to be troubled. And so when Jesus says to them in verse 1 of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. What comes next has to be pretty powerful to say, to bring this idea to their reality. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus gives them this exhortation to feel this specific way? Let not your hearts be troubled. You know, it's interesting to think about him exhorting them in that way. It means it would imply that they actually have a choice in the matter. Often we go through life in uncertainty or fear or difficulty or health problems or economy or politics or a variety of other things come upon us and as a result we have uncertainty and, 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 and we, we feel like we're troubled or burdened and that our hearts are downtrodden. It's almost like we don't have a choice in the matter, at least so we think. But in reality, if Jesus is encouraging them and encouraging us to not let our hearts be troubled, this seems to indicate that we do actually have a choice. In uncertainty and confusion and fear and difficulty, you have a choice. A choice either to let your heart be troubled or to not. <laughs> and there's something of an implication that lies behind this that Jesus is getting to. That what you know and who you trust informs your emotions in the midst of uncertainty. Let me say that again. What you know, what you know to be true in the midst of confusion and who you trust, who you rely upon, who you cling to, these things inform your emotions in the midst of uncertainty. And so when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, this seems to imply that when you believe in him, you don't need to be troubled. You don't have to succumb to letting your heart be troubled in uncertainty, in difficulty, or even in death. Now that's a big claim to say your life is hard. <laughs> Just believe in Jesus and it will be okay. And so what he says next better substantiate this claim. And he does. Jesus gives us in John 14 five reasons at least why you don't need to be troubled in the midst of uncertainty because of your belief in him. And John 14 is one of these passages that it feels like we're, we only are able to scratch the surface of the depths of it. And I want to encourage you just by way of a frame of mind right now, no matter where you are, whether you're encouraged in life or discouraged or uncertain about where you sit, 
John 14 is one of these passages in the Bible that points us again and again and again to just how incredibly awesome Jesus is. Number one, the first reason why you don't need to be troubled because you believe in him is that there is a place for you in heaven. Look at verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? When Jesus says that in his Father's house are many rooms, he's describing heaven. He's describing heaven in terms that we can relate to. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you think about it for a minute, heaven isn't something that we seem to talk about all that much anymore. That hasn't always been the case. For centuries, sermons and worship songs and hymns and conversations between Christians have been about a variety of things, and especially about heaven. But when was the last time you talked about heaven with somebody? Did you know that heaven is referred to over 600 times in the Bible? Jesus mentions, mentions heaven 70 times alone in the Gospel of Matthew. Heaven is the place where God is. Heaven is the place where Jesus currently lives. Heaven is the place that is the hope of the afterlife for all of those who would be found in him. And in fact, Jesus, sitting around the table, hours before his death, is pointing his disciples down to the road that they must walk to follow him. It's a road of difficulty, a road of pain, a road, a road of great spiritual power, a road of ultimate fulfillment. And at the end of that road is the person, Jesus himself, who is residing in heaven. Heaven is glorious in its nature. Jesus' description of it here is not meant to imply that it's actually like a house with many rooms. He's just using some language that will help us to understand. But the important thing about that picture is there are many rooms. You don't need to worry that heaven is going to be too crowded for you. You don't need to fear that somehow God won't have space for lowly little you. There is a place in heaven for you, for all who trust Jesus and call them, call him their savior. And so he says, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And the comfort from this reality is that when you are in the middle of difficulty, and you realize that your physical frame, your body is beginning to fail. It usually starts to happen around the age of 39. And it gets worse from there. That this body is not actually your home. And this place is not actually your home. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if... The tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. At dusk, a little girl entered the cemetery, and the old man who was sitting at the gate said to her, Aren't you afraid to go through the cemetery at dark? Oh, no, the little girl replied. My home is just on the other side. It's a picture 
of our spiritual reality as it relates to heaven. And so how often do you think about heaven? I would guess that for many of us, it's probably not all that often. But let me challenge you to start cultivating thoughts and the hope of heaven. Alexander McLaren once asked his congregation this question, did it ever occur to you, Christian, that your hope, that your hope is a thing to be cultivated? That you ought to exert specific effort to that purpose, to cultivating it. Get into the habit of meditating upon the object toward which your hope is directed. If you never lift your eyes to the goal, you will never be drawn to it. If you never think about heaven, it will have no attraction to you. Don't be troubled, Jesus says, number two. Don't be troubled because Jesus is preparing a place for you. He says in verses 2 and 3 that if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. It's a curious phrase. I go to prepare a place for you because the implication is that there is something, at least at this time, that is unprepared. There's something that's incomplete. And yet we know that heaven isn't incomplete. Heaven was not still being created when Jesus said this to his disciples. Colossians 1.16 tells us that for by him, being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Heaven was created. So I don't think it's lacking something that needs to be prepared. The place for you who are Christians is not somehow incomplete Nor do I think that your fellowship with God in heaven will be somehow lacking. God is perfect in all of his works and his ways and his nature. And the fellowship that you have with God in heaven will be deeper and more profound and unimaginable to you at this moment. And so what's left undone? What is incomplete? What still needs to be prepared? And the only thing that I can think of that was incomplete and needed further preparation is the way that we would get to this eternal heaven. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God, of course, is a reference to the Passover in which the Passover lamb is killed both as an act of repentance and faith. The blood is painted on the doorway. The faithful ones are passed over in judgment and continue with God in faith. Jesus is called the lamb of God. He's the perfect lamb of God. But yet this perfect Passover lamb of God had yet to be slain. That preparation was still happening. 
Sin had not yet been paid for. The wrath of God against sin had not yet been absorbed. The devil had not yet been defeated. Death had not yet been overcome. If you think of the road between earth and heaven as a mountaintop and a mountaintop with a massive gorge in the middle, the bridge from humanity to God was still being built. And no one would cross the bridge until it was complete. If you think of heaven as the mansion of God with many rooms, the front door to the mansion was not yet open. It was still being prepared in the final hours with his disciples. These preparations for you and for me and for them were being made from Jesus as he would ultimately be beaten, mocked, crucified, and buried. But, He is and did and now has completely accomplished the bridge to God. The front door to the mansion of the Father is wide open. Jesus prepared the place. And so do not let your heart be troubled. Number three, the third reason why you don't need to let your heart be troubled but you can believe in Jesus is because Jesus will take us to himself. Look at with me at verses three through seven again. I'll read it quickly. He says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And as we read those short few verses, a number of things immediately pop off the page to us. The first one is that no one is left behind. Jesus says that they know the way, but Thomas isn't so sure. He did not want to be left behind. You know the way. No, I don't, he says. I don't know where you're going. I don't know the way. You might feel like that a time or two, like that feeling of not wanting to be left behind. There's a variety of situations in life and that happens. I remember plenty of times skiing down the side of a mountain in the middle of the woods, not sure which direction I was heading and the people who I was with were going on in front of me and I thought to myself, man, if I don't keep up right now, I'm going to be left behind out in the middle of the woods, not knowing if they're turning left or right and if I'm going to have to hike it out or if I'm going to actually make it back to the lift. You don't want to be left behind. This is... uh, specific difficulty you can imagine for those in military service and combat zones. Confusion, fear, unfamiliar territory, and this is why it is so important that they follow the code. Nobody is left behind. And here, Thomas doesn't know the way to where Jesus is going. He doesn't want to be left out and he doesn't want to be left behind. He doesn't want to be the disciple that's lagging too far behind and confused when he gets to the end of his days. And Jesus assures him that he will not be. 
And part of the way that he assures him is because of this idea of the importance of knowing for sure. This is another observation of these short few verses. Did you catch how many times the fact that you can know something is mentioned here? Let me read you just the six times very quickly. Verse four, you know the way. Verse five, we don't know where. Verse five, how can we know? Verse seven, if you had known me. Verse seven, you would have known my father. Verse seven, from now on you do know him. No, 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 no. That's a whole lot of assertion about desire and question and the certainty of truly knowing. That's important. It's important detail, especially when you're dealing with matters of life and death and eternity. I hope you feel its importance. I hope that you're not comfortable. I hope that you have a great godly discontent if you don't know for sure what's going to happen to you and with you. I don't want you to be left behind I don't want you to go through your days with all the difficulties that we all experience all the time, not knowing what's real, what's lasting, what's eternal. And I certainly don't want you to get to the end of your days and to be laying on your bed with this cloud of uncertainty and confusion about what happens when you close your eyes that night. Because you can know. And Jesus clarifies right in the middle of this. He clarifies everything very succinctly for us. Jesus, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way, Thomas says. And Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven. No one lives in eternal bliss except through me. The how and the where of your eternal life with God is found in Jesus. The how and the where. Knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the way to your eternal home. Knowing Jesus is the way that you can be sure. Knowing Jesus is the way that you can have confidence in uncertain times right now and in the process of death. And this message of exclusivity is really important to key in on because I don't know about you, I'm sure you hear it all the time like I do. One of the many lies of our culture is that there are many ways to God and that if you're going to be a good and upright citizen of the Western world that you need to be able to not only recognize the different religions of the world but that you need to be able to accept all of their different ideas as equally valid. It's one of the most significant lies of our culture. You've often heard the description of your spiritual journey being on a mountain. 
and God himself is on top of the mountain, and your heavenly home rests up there with him, and all through life, what you do is that you are trying to climb the mountain on one of the many paths available to you, and the paths of the mountain represent the different religious beliefs and religious systems of the world. You've heard this illustration before, I'm sure. Many of us have. And so it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you call God All of the paths lead up to the top of the mountain, but here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the Buddhist has a different definition of who God is, what God is like, and what God's priorities are than the Muslim. And the Muslim has a different idea about how to get to heaven than the Hindu. And the Hindu has a different idea about how we relate to God, the notion of salvation, and the need for spiritual cleansing than the Christian. You see, the major religions of the world don't actually, in any logical sense, function as different paths to the same God. They are definitionally competing in their nature. They're contradictory to each other. And that is important, especially when Jesus makes a claim like he does here in John 14, 6. Because listen to what he didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. I am part of the truth. I'm a bit of the good life for you. Jesus didn't say, I am one of the ways to God. He says, I am the way the truth and the life. He makes the claim that he's the only way. And at this point, his disciples and any in his hearing have to decide, do we believe him? Do you trust him? Will you trust in him alone? even today. The other interesting part of this little section is that there's a shift. I wonder if you caught it. A shift from the focus on the place to the person. That Jesus was talking about his father's house. He was referring to heaven. He was referring to that eternal home that when we have a vision of it that we are seen through in this life. And in verse 3, he shifts from the place to the person. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. (laughs) I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Friends, there is not a lot that we know about heaven. But we know that the defining part of heaven is that is where Jesus is. Heaven is where I am, Jesus implies. The goal is not just to get to a place, but even more so the goal is to be reunited with the person. Then you come to full delight and complete healing. Then your spiritual and physical will be united. Being reunited with Jesus upon his return will show the glory of God fully. And instead of saying, I can't wait to get to heaven, Christians intimate throughout the years 
and the decades and the centuries. I cannot wait to be physically reunited with Jesus. Because he is that powerful. Because he is that glorious. Because he is my Savior. In his book, And the Life Everlasting, John Bailey tells of a Scottish physician who was attending to a close personal friend of his in his final hours before death. And the friend opened his eyes and looked up from the pillow and he said to the physician, you are a believer of sorts. What's going to happen right after I die? And after a long pause, there was this strong sound of scratching at the door of the bedroom. And the physician looked at his friend and he said, do you hear that scratching? And the man said, yes. He said, my dog has been waiting patiently for me downstairs. And his patience has obviously run out. (laughs) He's never been in this room before. He has no idea what it's like, but he knows just one thing about this room. He knows that I am here. When you ask me about eternity, he says, all I know about the future is that he is there. And so don't be troubled. Jesus will bring you to himself. One of the things I love about this passage in John 14 is that the voices of the disciples ring rather loudly. And you can almost picture it, right? Jesus in his final days, they sense the tension. They don't really know what happened to Judas. He kind of ran off into the night. They, he is speaking to them in a, a different level of urgency and seriousness. And they're sitting around the table and as he says something, well, what about this? And, and how about that? And I didn't think about this. And answer this question for me. And on and on and on. And so Peter says, well, where are you going? And Thomas asks, how do we get there? And now Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and this will be enough. It's like he's saying this situation is so confusing. The uncertainty that before us is so strong. Our faith is hanging on by a thread right now. Give me a sign. Show us the Father. And that leads to number four. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus because you have the Father right now. Verse seven, Jesus says, If you know me, you know the Father. Verse 9, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Verse 10, I don't speak my words, but the Father's. Verse 11, my Father does his actions through me. Verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Philip wants certainty. He wants a sign and Jesus says, you have it. I'm right here. Is that enough for you? Is it enough for you? That God is with you when you have Jesus? 
And if God himself is for you, then who can stand against you? You don't need a sign. You don't need another supernatural inkling. You don't need that mystical inner nudge. God is with you if you have Jesus. You have the Father right now, and so don't be troubled. Your Father is good to his children. And finally, number five, don't be troubled. Jesus says, because I will always be with you by the Holy Spirit. Next week, we'll spend more time on verses 12 through 31, but for the purposes of our time today, let me remind you of verse 16. It says this, Jesus says when he leaves that he will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. When Jesus was leaving, the disciples were afraid that they would be left alone. And there are times in this life, undoubtedly in the dark nights of the soul, where you too might feel or hear that little voice in the back of your head that says, you're all alone, Doug. You're not worthy, Brittany, no one loves you, Lana. You can't do anything significant, Peter. You're nothing but a failure, Nick. But you need to know this. That when those lies come upon you and Satan tempts you to despair, you do not need to be troubled. If you believe in Jesus, you have him. <laughs> if you believe in Jesus, you have the Father. If you believe in Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit. You are the children of God. You have the resources and the love and the care and the protection of the entire Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you will never be alone. And so he reminds you, your Savior does, do not be troubled. Believe in me. And so there it is. You have a choice in the matter. How you navigate life, how you navigate uncertainty, how you navigate difficulty, how you navigate grief, how you navigate fear. You have a choice in the matter. What you know and who you trust informs your emotions in the midst of uncertainty. Jesus says, the king of the universe says, the savior of the world says, don't be troubled, wondering if this health scare will be the end of you. Believe Jesus because he has a place for you in heaven. Don't be troubled thinking that you aren't good enough to get to heaven because the work is done and Jesus has prepared the place for you already. 
Don't be troubled, wondering where you go in these days, hoping that your path will somehow lead you to God. Believe in Jesus because he will take us to himself. Don't be troubled. Let your heart be glad. Don't be troubled because you haven't seen a sign from God for a while. Because your desire for that mystical, supernatural nudge hasn't been there lately. Believe in Jesus because you have the Father right now. Don't be troubled fearing that you are all alone in this life. Believe in Jesus because he will always be with you by his spirit. Many, many years ago, an old African-American spiritual was sung in some really dark and uncertain days. African-American slaves didn't know if they would live or die. They didn't know where they would be sometimes the next day or the next week or the next year. They didn't know if their families would remain together or if they would be cruelly separated. The days when the cares of the world, the most raw, the most basic survival cares of the world pressed upon them heavily and fear and uncertainty were all around them. They were horrific days. And they sang a song called Give Me Jesus. And the first verse of the song says, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. It's pretty astounding when you think about all the things they could be asking for. The chorus says, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. The second verse is a verse that we don't often sing today. It's dark midnight was my cry. Dark midnight was my cry. Dark midnight was my cry. But give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. Some of you know that song. Why don't we stand and we'll sing the last couple verses of it together. Pointing to the greatness and the sufficiency of our Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself. When I am alone When I am alone When I am alone Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, give me Jesus. And when I come to die, when I come to die, when I come to die, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, 
Give me 